Today's reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Destroy him. That feels intense. You heard the reading this morning. We are in the middle of preaching and teaching on the Sabbath. And uh, so you heard two stories from Mark's gospel just now. I have to say, personally, as somebody you've heard this for the last several weeks, and this is now the second time that we've preached on Sabbath since I've been here. Been here for about a year and a half or a little longer. And uh, so right when I got here, we preached a little bit on the idea of Sabbath. And now here we are again. And I'll just make a confession. Uh, when I practice Sabbath personally and with my family, I, especially if it's been a while or I've just not been able to hold this practice in a way that's meaningful, develop what I would call like a Sabbath wound. Do you have anything like this in your life where you are so busy, so fast moving that you don't notice what's settled in your body? And then as soon as you slow down, you can feel it. Does that ever happen? It's like when you get sick the first day of vacation. Does anybody get sick the first day of vacation? My dad always, Svetlana, you know what it's like. My dad was in the military for a while and he whenever he would get off for like the two weeks or whatever for leave, immediately would get sick the whole time. Mine is this weird like nerve pain right here and I know I know that my body is telling me something about how fast I'm moving through the world. Uh, so this morning, we're going to talk one more time about Sabbath. And we're going to try to do so in a way that is practical. But I'm still not sure if you buy it, if you buy this idea of Sabbath as something that you can take up in your life or that you should because as much as this sounds like a recommendation, like a restaurant that I really like that I'm inviting you to, this shows up over and over again in scripture as a commandment or as a law. So to figure out this is a law we still need to hold on to, we're not like eating shellfish or stoning people. We don't do that anymore. And those are laws in the Old Testament. So what does this one mean? Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, who writes a lot about church practices, former uh, priest, says that we are really good at keeping eight of the commandments, but there are two that we have let go of. One is the commandment to not have graven images, because we have lots of them here, even. Uh, and so this idea came up early in uh, the church's history, that if Jesus shows up in form that you can see, and then we say that here is God made visible, then maybe there's something that's changed about the visibility of the divine. So we sort of don't care about that one as much as it would seem. And then the other one, 
clearly is Sabbath. It's just a thing that we've let go of. Now, I'm deeply advocating for us to pick it back up as a practice, as a grounding practice. And you might think, uh, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but you might assume that when Jesus shows up, that Jesus does away with the necessity for Sabbath, that somehow Sunday worship practices take the place of whatever was instituted on that Sabbath practice. Uh, again, I'm going to just really plainly say that's not the case. Um, so here's what we have to figure out today. Is the Sabbath a gift or a burden? Yeah, it feels like both. I'm just aware on these days when we all gather and worship together of everything that you're carrying with you that you bring into the room. Uh, I don't know your to-do list, but if you're anything like me, you've got one. Uh, Marcy, how many times today have you thought about the budget, the building, the whatever's waiting for us on Monday morning with the staff? Like, it's just, and, and I know that because we work together, but that's true. Uh, Sean, right? There's some, at some point today, you thought about you're carrying with you all the things that you have to do in your own life. Maybe to set them aside, it takes, takes practice. And, and I can feel, if I were to walk through the aisles, can feel all of that kind of reverberating off of us. And to set aside an hour, an hour and a half or two hours to come into worship is to set that other stuff aside and to say that it can wait or that it is just not the most important thing happening in our lives right now. But if we are deeply wedded to the idea that efficiency is what gives us worth, then to slow down is going to be a problem and then Sabbath is going to feel like a burden. It takes practice to move from burden to gift. Over and over again. In fact, I think it's the reason that God gives it to us every six days is because that's how much practice we need to move it from a burden to a gift. I want to read you something this morning from my very favorite book on the Sabbath. Uh, well, the first time we preached through this, we had these out in the back for you. Uh, this time we have a different book. But if you would like some devotional reading on Sabbath, you could do a lot worse than uh, Heschel's book, just called the Sabbath. It's very small, right? It's not super intimidating, um, but it is gorgeous. So hear these words. Heschel uh, is a late a Jewish thinker, uh, rabbi, and teacher, and see if this resonates with the scripture we just heard read from Mark's gospel. Here we go. For all the idolization, there's no danger of the idea of the Sabbath becoming a fairy tale. With all the romantic idealization, the Sabbath remains a concrete fact, a legal distinction, and a social order. There's no danger of becoming a disembodied spirit, for the spirit of Sabbath must always be accorded with actual deeds, with definite actions, and with things left undone. The real and the spiritual are one, like body and soul in a living man. It's for the law to clear the path. It's for the soul to sense the spirit. One more time. It's for the law to clear the path, and it's for the soul to sense the spirit. This is what the ancient rabbis felt. The Sabbath demands all of our attention, service and single-minded devotion of total love. The logic of such a conception compelled them to enlarge the legal code, the ordinances, and the commandments. And so maybe where there was ten before, like the Ten Commandments, you get this sort of 600-plus 
of laws and commandments and good deeds that you're supposed to do, the mitzvot. They sought to ennoble human nature and make it worthy of being in the presence of the royal day. Yet, law and love, discipline and delight were not always fused. In their illustrious fear of desecrating the spirit of the day, the rabbis established a level of observance that was only within reach of a few exalted souls. The ancient rabbis, they knew the problem of excessive piety, that it could endanger fulfillment of the essence of the law. There's nothing more important, according to Torah, than to preserve human life. Even when there's the slightest possibility that a life may be at stake, one may disregard every prohibition of the law. This is a super important, what we would call like an interpretive principle that Jesus is picking up. You heard him say it. What's better to do? Should we preserve life? And they all sit silent and he gets angry and his heart breaks. Continuous austerity may severely dampen Yet frivolity would obliterate the spirit of the day. Sabbath is not an occasion for diversion, not a day to shoot fireworks or turn somersaults, but an opportunity to mend our tattered lives, to collect rather than to dissipate time. And then the question, who will teach us how to live and desire anxiously the spirit of a sanctified and sacred day? This book is this sort of love song to the Sabbath as a gift given from God. And every time that I read it, and I I read it a few times a year, I'm struck by how important, how grounding this practice has been for our Jewish brothers and sisters and what we might be missing if we don't continually pick it up ourselves. But this line here, Sabbath has been given to us and not the other way around. There are times when our religious practices, our observances, our, our habits, they start to feel like the point. They were never the point. They were always to bring us into wholeness, to put us back together, that language of salvation or of healing or of rescue. When the law becomes the point, it's a little bit like when you meet people who want to have conversations about how you interpret the Bible and you hear words like inerrancy and you think like, this is actually not the point. This is a lens through which we see the point. We don't worship the Bible, we worship the word and the word is Christ. It's a different distinction, but it's super important. So there's this language that Heschel talks about dissipated time. I had to look how to, how to spell this word. So I'll tell you what it means in case you're not sure what dissipated means. It's like when if I were to blow this candle out and the smoke just kind of drifts off and then spreads out, it's things that are falling apart or that are disintegrating. And this is what time can feel like outside of Sabbath. But there's another word we could use for dissipated. It would be the language of desecration. So uh, Wendell Berry, agrarian poet and theologian, he says about place, he says that there are no unsacred places. There are simply desecrated and sacred spaces. And I believe that would be true of time, too. There's not a sense of, of like, unholy time. There's just desecrated time. And that's honestly where we spend a lot of our lives, In the spaces where our energies are expended and sometimes they feel like they're getting sort of poured down the drain to not be recovered. What this means is that the way we inhabit time might in fact 
be sinful. So the Sabbath offers us something else, what we might call holy time or sanctified time. There's a reason that when we started the service, we lit the candle and we rang the bell. In some really small way, we were trying to name the time that we were entering as sacred, as different, as set apart. And pulling that awareness into our center today might help us to step into the truth of the day. If you rushed in and you missed that part and you're still kind of scattering, take a moment and recognize the kind of time that you're inhabiting. We have all been praying together that this is a sacred space and a sacred time. Here is what Heschel would say the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is this sort of dress rehearsal for the life to come. So I was reading this week uh, all over the place, and one of the ideas that, that Sabbath has kind of had a resurgence, and um, who's been to a spa in the last month? Ben? No. You don't have, nobody's been to a spa in the last month? Yes. Kathy, you got to go to one. Uh, there's been this like resurgence in self-care, uh, of, of treating yourself, that kind of language. And it coincides pretty nicely with just how crazy we feel all of the time. Uh, and so often this desire for something like Sabbath, and, and it's true that we yearn for this kind of sacred time and this kind of sacred space. But if we don't have the language and the story about being gifted it from God, we're going to look for it in other places. By the way, there's absolutely nothing wrong with going to the spa, right? It's just a different activity than Sabbath. There is, it is important to, to have a sense of like worth and dignity and to care for yourself. Uh, but often when we think about rest in those ways, we're recharging for the world. Some of you might consider Sabbath practice to be really good for your nine to five job on Monday. Like I'm going to be so productive because I rested so hard. I'm so good at resting that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crush it when I get back to work. That is Sabbath-serving utility. And that's often the way that a lot of folks, myself included, sometimes think about, about rest. But when Heschel talks about it, when the Bible talks about Sabbath, it's something completely different. Sabbath isn't made to serve the rest of the week. The rest of the week is meant to yearn for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the space that God has given us and called holy, is a time when we are invited. And this is the crux of the thing. We are invited to live in the world and in time as God intended it to be. That we inhabit the rhythms and the textures of heaven right now. And the deep truth about Sabbath is that we don't have to do anything but step in. Now, this same language is very similar to when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near and it's in your midst. That we are invited to inhabit the world as God imagines it could be now, here. Not some other time, not after our work is done or after all the to-do lists are done and not after we die, but right now. And for folks who keep Sabbath, every week 
we can step into the presence of God, into the rhythms of God, and feel what we were supposed to feel like all the time. It becomes this kind of dress rehearsal. So I want to talk about some practices, both that accompany Sabbath keeping across the centuries and also things that have been meaningful for me and things that you might pick up as well. So uh, traditional Sabbath service, I've been to a couple of them. And one of them was in Israel, in Jerusalem. And the service often starts well, well before Sabbath. I got an email from a friend of mine, Tom, this week, talking about the importance of preparing to enter into this space. Did anyone take a shower this morning or last night and to prepare for church? And did and maybe pulled out, is anyone wearing clothes today that are Sunday morning clothes? Yeah. I know you are, James. You look super good this morning. Uh, that's your Sunday morning jewelry. We have this sense of preparing for whenever we come into worship. Does anyone have a practice when you park in the garage on your way into the service uh, that kind of prepares your heart and mind to be here? Is anyone that sort of forward thinking? I pray for the attendant. You pray for the attendant at the door? Yeah, there's, there are these ways in which we, we bring our attention to what we're about to enter into. Sabbath is no different. So you'll hear people who, who keep Sabbath, there's this kind of frenzy that happens on Thursday and Friday to get ready for the Sabbath. You're out shopping, you're preparing the meal, you're buying flowers and filling the house with beautiful things, you're setting the lights how you need them to be. There are all of these things that go into. It's a lot, Chris and Stephanie, like when we got ready for your wedding. The rehearsal dinner was so that when you get married, you can be present in the space and in the time. Not having to do all of that planning. That was for yesterday. So there are the things that you do leading up to Sabbath. Now, traditionally, it would be to light two candles. And the two candles have this deep symbolism, but if they mean anything, they represent the two commandments to keep Sabbath. One from Exodus 20, one from Deuteronomy 5. You were to observe the Sabbath and you were to keep the Sabbath. And what uh, folks carry into this meaning is that one candle... For all of the things that you're going to pick up on this day, the practices, the postures, the experiences, the, the mood that you are savoring, you are desiring, it's all of the yeses of Sabbath. And then the other candle represents all of the things that have stolen your time, that have dissipated your energy, and all of the things that you get to say no to on this day. And that's the first thing that happens when you enter into this space. If you have a Bible, grab it. I've got lots of sticky notes in it today. There is this Hebrew word called Asah that shows up in both of the Sabbath commandments. I'm going to read from Exodus 20 for you. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then it says, six days you're going to labor and do all your work. Seventh day is the Sabbath. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. That word made is the word asah. It shows up in both of these passages. This is the action that God undertakes to make the world. If you go to Deuteronomy 5, you'll see it again. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. For the Lord God commanded you, 
Six days you shall labor and assah and do your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath, Lord, you are not to assah any work. You are not to do any work. You, your son, your daughter, anyone who's in your home. And I want to read for you Isaiah. If you look at all of the no's that you're given for what you're not supposed to do in the Sabbath, this language of Asah, if you sort of go through and you read the text and read Torah, there is this kind of explosion of Asah, of making, that appears at the end of the book of Exodus. And this space where we make, where our action happens in the world, is in making the tabernacle over and over again, like hundreds of times, this language of making shows up when we make the house for God. Now, the language for tabernacle, this making of the tabernacle is supposed to be akin to God's making of the world. And when God makes the world, God creates a space where life can flourish. Now, it doesn't stay that way. And, and over the course of the biblical narrative, you get to a point where everything has fallen apart and God's people are in slavery and they're released, but they're in the wilderness. And there's a problem, which is that there's no space where the world is as it's supposed to be. And so they build a tabernacle, which is like a little bitty Eden. It's like a little bitty garden. And then we are invited to participate by mimicking the actions of God. God makes the world and then we make this little bitty world where things are as they are supposed to be. So when you enter into Sabbath, there is this sort of prohibition against Asah, against the making, particularly any kind of action that would have been in the construction of the tabernacle. Because at some point, you have to enter into the thing. You have to step into God's holiness and God's space and time and just be. Chapter 58, the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. In a little bit, we're going to talk about Martin Luther King, but this feels to me akin to the kind of language that was picked up in the civil rights movement and is getting picked up today in similar movements. Listen to these words. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if there were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinances of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you don't see? Why humble ourselves? You don't notice. Look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow the head down like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast day acceptable to the Lord? And in this language, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover them 
not to hide yourself from your own kin. Isaiah is describing the world as God intends it to be. And indicting those who would practice their religion such that it does not make the world as God intends it to be. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord. There is something for me I said this last week, I'll say it again right now because I'm looking out and seeing you. Um, There's something beautiful about you here with one another and with God. There's something sacred about the fact that you have set your phones and your planners and your anxiety down just for a little bit. And I know that sometimes just being in church can start to feel like a rhythm that you don't notice the deep meaning of it. But it is clear to me most Sundays, and it is really clear to me right now, that you are here. And that language of forsaking the space and time that you're in doesn't feel like as much of an indictment in this moment. Refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day. I don't feel any of you pursuing your own interests right now. If you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and sacred, if you honor it, not going your own way, serving your own interests or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord. We are craving creatures, full of desires. And when church, when religion is at its best, it is a channel for those desires back to their source. Then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth, feed you on the heritage of your ancestor Jacob, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This language of delighting. One of the reasons that we don't assail on the Sabbath is because most of our making is trying to make our desires come true. And what we are called to do and be in the world is simply to exist in what God has already given us. That language of delighting in God. That practice of gratitude and sacred presence. That is the gift of the Sabbath. What it means is that at least once a week, we believe that there is nothing left to make. 
And there's nothing left to do but simply to enter in to what God has already done. There is a saying uh, that if one person were to keep Sabbath perfectly, then Messiah would come. This is what the rabbis would say. If one person kept the Sabbath perfectly, the Messiah would come. Now, what does Jesus say on the cross in John's gospel? The last thing that Jesus says. It is finished. The language of telos. Everything is done. Jesus says earlier, I didn't come to, to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And then Jesus speaks in this moment on Friday the language of completion, of fulfillment. It is done. There's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to make. We just enter into and then What does Jesus do on the Sabbath if not rest completely? We would call it the tomb, and then the world is born again on the first day of the week. There's nothing left to do. You've been laboring. You have been busy. You are tired. Your energy is dissipated. You know this is true. This space, this time that we have entered into, that many people have worked very hard this week to create, right? Buying flowers and turning on the crock pot and making sure that we can be here together now. This is where you just get to be and delight in the Lord. Now, let's talk about crock pots and elevators and iPhone sleeping bags, okay? So let's be practical for just a moment. Uh, Crock-pots are a really great invention if you're not supposed to cook on the Sabbath. In fact, there w- there's sort of this like deep connection with uh, families that keep Sabbath, Jewish families, and the necessity for a crock-pot meal set up on Friday because you don't have to do anything. It's already made for you. Uh, so maybe that's something that you practice. Or have you ever been on an elevator that's set to Sabbath mode? Do you know that there are elevators that have a Sabbath mode? Uh, so one of the prohibitions against uh, the, the doing and making on the Sabbath is like lighting a fire, is kindling something, and sort of like finishing an electric connection, like turning a light switch on or pressing a button on an elevator could count as violating that. And so there are these elevators that stop on every floor on the Sabbath. So that when you get in them, you can get where you're going without having to engage in this action that would sort of break. Now, if I ask, that feels a little silly, maybe, unless you're deeply holding to these truths, to these concepts. But for me, what I really need is the last one on this list. I really need a place to put my phone to bed. There's this uh, group called the Sabbath Manifesto. It's a group of Reformed Jews in New York. It started in like 2010. And they actually had this little thing that they made, which was like a little sleeve or a sleeping bag that you could put your phone in. What would it mean if you set a vacation responder on your email on Friday night and just said, I'm not reachable on Saturday? Everyone just had a moment of existential dread inside of you. You told people that you're not going to be as reachable unless they come and they knock on the door. 
what would that look like? <laughs> in my family, in my life, personally, I've said before I don't write sermons on Saturdays. Uh, what I make in the world are, are words and sentences and ideas that get put together for 30 or 40 minutes once a week. This is kind of my craft and and the materials, the medium that God has given me to work with. And it's super tempting to work all the way up until uh, 9.30 on Sunday. And when I talk to friends of mine who are ministers, that's the pattern. So Saturdays are for sermons. Uh, I know, though, I, for a while I've known that if that was my practice, then there would never be a, a space where I just enjoyed and delighted in the Lord. Because I would always be working I would always be doing, and that's all good work, right? Like, you, you might be thinking right now, John, you should have probably done a little bit <laughs> on Saturday. And I've thought that before. I've gotten to Fridays where the week was heavy, and there was crisis after crisis, and I've come to the end of Friday and looked down and thought, this isn't done. And there are times where I've picked up and, and done some writing, but honestly, the, the like deep belief, that Sabbath gives us, it forces us, is that God has given us everything that we need. That God has given me everything that I need. And that I will be able to give you what you are waiting for on Sundays that isn't exactly contingent on my hustle. And so I, I stop on Saturdays. Now you, most of you don't write sermons on during the week, so that may not be the practice for you. But Sabbath is built on intentional habits and rhythms and practices. Maybe you don't turn on screens one day a week. Maybe you hang sheets over all of the mirrors in your home so you don't have to feel inadequate one day a week. Part of Naming the practices that make Sabbath holy is understanding who Pharaoh is and where Egypt is for you. What is it that has you bound? And then with some kind of precision, name the things that would undo, that would break those chains. So I'm not joking when I say I've got to put my phone down because there's something that feels like Egypt in there. Like always tapping on me, always needing my attention. Your email might feel the same way. I was talking to someone, Rebecca, we were talking about, about worship, that there is something strange about setting aside this time and that you will have demands on your time on Friday and Saturday where folks will say, can you please? And you'll say, I actually can't. I don't have any more time. This is what I'm doing on this day, on this time. When we go out on Saturdays and don't have our phones, uh, it's it's a very strange experience. We were talking to the, I told you, like, the God Whole Foods, and you freaked out that we didn't have a phone with us. It was this whole, like, thing. Sabbath will make you strange in the world. It will set you apart. But not so that you can name everything as wrong, but so that you might exist in a place that is whole at least a little bit of the time. So here's the ten principles that Sabbath Manifesto came up with. These don't have to be yours, but I think there's some lovely wisdom in them. Uh, you'll notice number one is avoid technology. Connect with loved ones. <laughs> Nurture your health. Like, what if you slept in one day a week? 
Now, I know that feels lazy, but sleep is a gift. Who loves to sleep? Sean, I'm still mad that you got me up at 5.40 on middle of the week. Go outside. Avoid commerce. Now, you can hear in these the angst of like urban city dwelling folks living your life in a cubicle underneath fluorescence. Avoid commerce. Other people's Sabbath might be contingent on your Sabbath. Light candles. Now, drink wine. There's something maybe really special about wine for your life, and that would make you feel like this is a special moment. If wine is not a thing that you need to have in your home or in your life, then drink something special, like a spritzer. Eat bread. Find silence. Give back. I like these. They're super practical. They're a start. Maybe this week sit down with people you care about and write out your own. Practices that you want to bring into your life that would help you enter in just a little bit. It may not be a whole day. It might just be an hour. It might be, I thought about this this week, if you can't, what if just one day a week you sat down and you wrote a note to God that said why you're sorry that you can't? You can't be there this week. You can't set this stuff aside. And it hurts you. You know that it hurts God. What if that was the practice? Just an apology for the trampling. At the end of the Shabbat service, end of Sabbath. So Sabbath begins with two candles. It ends with what's called a Havdalah service. And the Havdalah is the language of separation because Sabbath is a separating. It's boundaring off a certain kind of time. And if you've been to one of these services, one of the things that they do is they pass around an orange with like cloves or cinnamon stuck into it. And you smell it when it goes by and hand it to the next person. It might be a jar of spices. And it is meant to evoke in you this joy and something that you can carry with you, this memory into the rest of the week. Again, Sabbath is the blessing for the rest of time, not the utility for the rest of time. And so maybe at the end of your practice of Sabbath, you have some kind of marker that says, I'm going to leave this space and enter back into the world's dissipating energy. And there is some level of pain involved in that. But I'm carrying this with me, this memory, this mood, this posture, this closing down of the space that I've been in. Havdalah is this language of separation. And Sabbath creates, if we can figure out how to honor it and how to keep it, uh, this little architecture in time, Heschel calls it, where we get to enter in. But again, it's not so that we can name everything else outside of Sabbath time as evil and wrong and other. To move into a rhythm that is life-giving and whole is to put us together such that we might move into the world and put it back together. So Sabbath, it exposes an abyss in our lives, exposes the fracture and the dissipation and the disintegration, the trampling. It makes it really clear, right? I told you at the beginning, I have this pain right here that the world is giving me and I can feel it extra on Sabbath. It exposes 
the ways that I am bent over by this world. But Sabbath also imagines a bridge back to God. It allows us to sit for just a moment in the world as God has made it to be. And in that imagining, in that glimpsing of the kingdom, to carry it out into the rest of the world. I'm acutely aware that uh, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day of service. Uh, this is a picture actually that I drew from uh, drawing a picture I saw in Pasadena. So King came to Pasadena a few times, lectured at Caltech, but also preached twice at Friendship Baptist Church down the street in the 60s. And uh, I had a professor in graduate school and seminary who wrote a book on King called Preacher King. And there is this side of King's life that sometimes gets lost in his legacy and his remembering, which is that he was a preacher and he was a church man. And that so much of the civil rights was embedded in local communities who worshipped. And if you go and you read the stories from this time, you can sense the exhaustion, the tireless work that went into fighting for freedom and for equality. And when I look at it, it's staggering. And I think, how in the world did they keep this pace? But then you watch Sundays when they would gather in the church. And King would preach or he would sit and receive a sermon. And they would sing songs. And if every day of the week the world told them a different story about who they were and what their worth was, there was one day and one place and one bracketed time where they were God's children. And the world was as it was supposed to be. And that, that sacredness is what drove the rest of the movement. It's what gave it its power. A lot of the civil rights movement was naming with precision the abyss. But the language of like the beloved community was only discovered when King and those who were working in this movement gathered together and just lived like the kingdom of God was already present. And this is what is on offer with Sabbath, with God's time. There's a rabbi named Rabbi Shimeon. And he had this problem of assuming that the religious life meant you had to scorn the world. You had to forsake the world so that you could get really, really holy. You know people like this in the church. Maybe you are a person like this in the church. And uh, so he's, he's known to say, he's known to have said and screamed it. There is heaven and then there is nothing else. And it says that heaven answered. There is heaven and there's everything else. That's the wisdom of Sabbath. It's the wisdom of the black church experience. That there is heaven present. And it is waiting to suffuse everything else. Which brings us back to our first story. Of picking the wheat on the Sabbath. And of healing the withered hand. Jesus' answer whenever the religious leaders scold him for picking the weed, is that, oh, hold on, like David did something very similar to this. If you flip back to 1 Samuel 21, you find this story of David and his merry men traveling. 
and they come upon a sacred space, a temple, and they're hungry and they ask for bread. And the priest at the time says, there's, there's no regular bread here. There's just this consecrated bread. In that phrase, I feel like there is everything about the Sabbath. There is no ordinary bread here, only holy bread. The practice of setting aside time that is for God, to delight in God, to no longer assume you earn your salvation, but to just exist inside the goodness of what God has already done for you. It names all time as God's time. It starts with this time as God's time. I'm asking you to set something apart, to set yourself apart so that you might move back into the rest of time and help put it back together. There is no ordinary bread here. It's all holy. Would you pray with me? God, forgive us our trampling. Forgive us our our restless souls. But bring us into a space of rest. Give us just a glimpse of the world as you intend it to be. Even right here, right now, in this singing, in this delighting, meet us. We do yearn for this. We yearn for you. But there are so many things, God, that we can't seem to get past. So give us the strength and the courage to just set them aside, just at least every once in a while. Clear the path with good practices so that our souls may find you. Hear our prayer. Amen.